the Benito Juarez experience. My name is Joan Navarro Rivera. Today we are going to have a special episode. It will consist of a speech that I gave last week, October 12, 2017, at the American Humanist Association in Washington, D.C. The name of the talk is What is DACA and Why It Matters. We hope you enjoy it. We also want to remind you that you can contribute to the funds uh, for the relief, uh, Puerto Rico relief. Uh, at, uh, you can find the information at the Half Free Hispanic American Freethinkers website, halffree.org. Uh, thank you very much. And now let's continue with today's episode. Uh, so I will talk for about, I will say, 25, 30 minutes. Um, as I said, my talk is mostly political, so I'm going to go into a description of what DACA is and who are the beneficiaries, and I even talk toward the end why it's being uh, eliminated. But the core of the talk is basically the context of what brought us to DACA, which is a larger problem of the immigration system and which DACA is just a piecemeal arrangement for something that is much larger uh, and why the way we have treated the, the, the dreamers matters and why, because they are basically the canary in the coal mine for larger issues. And so that's why it's, what is DACA and why it matters. Um, so what is DACA? It means Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And basically, it's not an executive order. It's, a, it's sort of a directive, technically a memo, by the Department of Homeland Security. They're passed uh, Secretary Janet Napolitano during the Obama administration, in which basically create this program, which is an essential uh, prosecutorial or uh, bureaucratic discretion aspect of it, in which the federal government decides, or in, in this case, ICE and the immigration informants agencies, uh, basically decides to make these cases not a priority. Uh, but it's not just the case that any person with that particular status, in which I go into a moment, is eligible. So, you know, it has to feature, uh, uh, they have to have certain characteristics. Uh, and also it's not a permanent program or, uh, or status. It's basically, you have to renew if you're, if you're eligible and you are actually, uh, granted status, you have to apply every, reapply every two years. So it's not, there's no element of being permanent. Uh, so it lasted for about, it has lasted for about five years and now has been Uh, since last month, the uh, Trump administration decided that it was going to rescind it. Um, so who is eligible for this program? And so basically it has to, certainly you have to be born abroad, of course. Uh, and you have to have come to the United States before you were 16. That's the first one. Or you are under the age of 31 or 31. So between 16 and 31 at the time uh, of implementation, Uh, with no valid immigration status, and that means that you're not a student, that means that you are not a green card holder, that means basically you have an undocumented uh, status. And you have to have continuously resided in the United States 
uh, basically in the five years previous to the so between June to fifth June two thousand and seven uh, and and the moment that it was uh, implemented. And also you have to be doing something what we would call maybe productive in society. So you have to be enrolled in school, you have to be either in the military or you have to be actually working uh, in order to be eligible. And of course the, the uh, crime enforcement aspect is that you have not, have basically a fairly clean record, certainly with no felonies. Uh, and sort of a three-strike kind of thing for misdemeanors. Uh, so that's basically it. So that, that's the population uh, that it's benefiting or, or that was the beneficiaries of the program. Uh, and certainly the program lasts for, or the status for the person who is granted, it lasts for two years. Uh, so every two years you have to renew it, and with every two years... Uh, having to renew it, it comes also with paperwork and fees, uh, which at that point were about, I would say, uh, almost $500 in fees, uh, for application. Uh, and of course you have to provide all the documentation that, of course, these, this is your status where you were born and, and, you know, all the documentation, whether you're enrolled in school, uh, your, your place of employment or like, your military record. Um, so that's basically the eligibility application. So you know, those are the eligibility requirements. That's the population that is served by the program. Now, how many people have been under this program? Uh, the current like kind of like rough estimate is about 800,000 people. Um, the Pew Research Center actually uh, updated some of the, their data uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they estimate that about 700,000 are still currently enrolled in the program, or at least at the time that they got the data. Um, about 70,000 people had been uh, rejected or did not renew uh, eventually. So were further rejected or did not renew at some point. And 40,000 or so uh, eventually became green card holders. Um, they have, you know, there's a fairly young population. Most of them are between the ages of 21 and 25. Because it's a fairly young population, most of them are single. The vast majority come from Mexico, which is, comes to no surprise, uh, given that it's not just our closest trading partner, it also shares a border with us. Uh, and interestingly, it, uh, at least the data that the Pew Center has, it, uh, it has a male to female ratio that is a little skewed. So there, um, the majority are women. Uh, so 53% to 47%. Uh, and so what was, what has been the benefits that this population has gotten, these, uh, these, uh, persons have gotten from DACA. So the Center for American Progress did a survey of DACA recipients uh, a couple of years ago, and they actually found that a lot of them report that, you know, they got a better job uh, thanks to have these semi-regularized status, that they were able to go to school and pursue opportunities that they had not been able to get otherwise, uh, that their wages increase, and that means that were able to help their family more. Uh, and also something very important that we can do 
every day, but that a lot of people cannot do in this country, which is actually get an ID. And so actually that's the biggest benefit that they report other than going to school. So 89% reported that they finally were able to get a state ID or a driver's license. Um, so those are the benefits, but there's also two major downsides, uh, particularly uh, for them. One of them is that there's a temporary relief, right? That you have to go every two years, at least if, if the program had gone uh, in perpetuity, every two years you would have to renew your status, uh, which means that, you know, you are not, I mean, you, you certainly have a better peace of mind than you had before, but you're still on the, uh, on the edge. Uh, and one, what, which is a big issue, uh, and that it's certainly coming up now, it's the fact that to some extent, you have to out yourself. And so you have to trust the government that they're not going to use this information for anything else. Uh, and so there's a big leap of faith, uh, which is, I don't know if it's the best term to use in, a, in this building, but yes. So there's a big leap of faith with the government that you are making and uh, basically saying, okay, I'm doing this. Uh, I'm trusting you with uh, my personal information and you basically know where to find me. So that's what DACA is. That's who benefited from DACA. Now, how DACA came to be, it's a longer story. And today, which is actually October 12, we can start from there. So 525 years ago, Christopher Columbus arrived. Uh, I'm going to move a little farther along the timeline, uh, but certainly he started it all. Uh, and I'm actually, I could go back to the Clinton administration, but I think it's easier to keep it in this century. So back in the Bush years, in the Bush administration, I'm going to, do a little Marco Rubio here and get some water. <laughs> Back during the uh, George W. Bush administration, not the George H. W. Bush administration, there was uh, a lot of debates and a lot of discussion about finally implemented comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, Bush was a big proponent. Uh, his main... Uh, opponent in the Republican primary was Senator John McCain, who then became the Republican candidate in 2008, uh, was also part of the uh, gang of, at that moment, I don't remember how many were there uh, in the Senate. Uh, but one of the many, John McCain has mostly always been in the immigration reform gangs, and it's kind of ironic that they always call themselves gangs. Uh, and so... There was also these, uh, especially because uh, most of the undocumented immigrants who are in the United States, given the proximity and the economic ties are certainly coming from Mexico and other parts of Latin America. Uh, there has been, uh, especially at that time, a lot of debate about whether uh, the Latino vote was going to be essential for Republicans. Uh, and in 2004, there's this... Uh, uh, earth shattering, I would say, for Latino politics, number in which polls show that 
about 40%, 44%, depending on which poll you believe, much fewer uh, from other studies that a lot of Latinos voted for George W. Bush more than ever Latino had voted for George W. Bush. Uh, and so that got, that got basically a lot of momentum. And around 2006, 2007, there's a lot of debate nationally about whether we're going to get an immigration reform bill finally passed. Uh, I'm giving this talk so you know that didn't happen. Uh, but that, you know, that, th those efforts failed for various reasons, uh, bipartisan for the most part, in which like both Democrats and Republicans actually uh, sabotaged uh, the talks to some extent. But what ha ended happening is that alongside that, there was a, uh, a political movement uh, brewing. And in 2006, there were these major manifestations of a lot of undocumented immigrants marching in American cities, uh, basically to a large extent outing themselves and, and demanding their humanity being uh, admitted, uh, for lack of a better word. And so the, this is the political context in which that is happening. The, dream, the dreamers, the concept of the dreamers or the term of the dreamers, come, it comes from the Dream Act. And the Dream Act is, uh, uh, is a bill mostly in the Senate that has been introduced since 2001, uh, initially by Dick Durbin, eventually with some co-sponsors, uh, and since 2001, some version of it has been floating around uh, in the Senate. Some more friendly than others, sometimes several versions. Uh, the current version of the DREAM Act uh, basically has three steps. And it's one, it gives a conditional permanent residency to people who, were in, who came to the United States under the age of 18 enter four years prior to the enactment of the law and has been in the country ever since and has not been convicted of a crime and has been admitted to a school, uh, university, college, has been serving in the military, has a permanent job. Uh, so it's basically the basics of DACA. This is the population. That's the first step, which is basically what DACA does. Eventually, the second step is once you satisfy the programs, you are given a lawful permanent residence. And eventually, it could lead to naturalization. So that's why this particular cohort of young people are called the dreamers, is because of being the potential beneficiaries of a dream act. Now, why they are... Uh, Targeted, and there are this particular group that uh, is is more prominent these days. One is political mobilization. They have been very good at mobilizing politically. That includes uh, in around I want to believe it's 2011. I can't put the date. Uh, but in one of the conferences of the National Council of La Raza, the uh, potential dreamers. Uh, interrupted a speech by Barack Obama, President Barack Obama, at the time, asking him, like, when are you going to fulfill your promise to us? 
at the point, the Obama administration claimed that they had no executive authority to do anything. Uh, but that political pressure kept building. And eventually that led to DACA, which is, as I said before, not necessarily executive order, but basically bureaucratic discretion by the Department of Homeland Security. The reason why they are so prominent, other than their activism, it's that a lot of activists and a lot of politicians use them as the most sympathetic figures of the undocumented population because they were kids. So you can say, oh, how are you going to... How you, you know, so They were kids who grew up in the United States, so oftentimes it's the only country they know uh, or have memory of. Uh, and, so, and, you know, they were just following their parents. They haven't done anything wrong. Um, and they have aspirations and, you know, they want to live the American dream like any other American. That is all fine and well. But to many dreamers, this is actually... Uh, a kind of language that, you know, especially they, they didn't do anything wrong. It kind of criminalizes their parents. And so they're not very happy with that kind of narrative. Uh, and so they are also not very happy with the fact that singling them out leaves their families uh, basically, uh, you know, unprotected. Uh, and so many people may, ha may have not participated in the program for that same reason, because, they, you know, they, this is too selfish uh, for them to, to some extent in the sense that, you know, it's just solving part of the problem. Um, and, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, the DREAM Act is not just a word, it's actually an acronym because the senators like to do that. Uh, I, they usually get interns to come up with them. Uh, the Development Relief and Education for Alien Minors Act. Took many sessions, I guess. Uh, so, uh, you know, as I said before, the bill has never become a law. Uh, but that's the, that does not mean that there hasn't been no action. Uh, so several states have passed their version of the DREAM Act. And their version of the DREAM Act usually entails... Uh, Passing a law particularly granting undocumented students who graduated from state schools the uh, in-state tuition. Because otherwise, I mean, in public universities. So, because otherwise they would be eligible for, uh, yeah, for, not, not necessarily financial aid. Because there's a federal level, they are still not. Uh, but also because if not, they will have to pay foreign student fees, which if you have seen those, uh, and I have seen those because, uh, you know, my... But they would be eligible for federal aid. Like no, no. But the state could grant, you know, could be eligible for a state aid, and, and basically they don't have to pay these uh, foreign student fees, which are, yeah, which are high. very high. And... So it has, you know, so there's a few states that have done it already. California, Colorado, Connecticut, Florida, Illinois, Kansas, Maryland, Minnesota, Nebraska, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, Oklahoma, Oregon, Rhode Island, Texas, Utah, and Washington. 
The District of Columbia already passed one, yeah, too? Yeah. Okay. Ah, the UDC. Yes. Um, thank you. And so, as you may have noticed, these state dream acts actually have been passed by both blue and red states. Uh, because despite the con congressional inaction, uh, this is actually a very popular proposal. Uh, so, but of course, the states can only address what we were talking before. They can only address the in-state issues. They cannot address immigration status because is that is the uh, prerogative of the federal government. And so, that means that unless Congress acts, nothing can be done on that area. And again, because it lacks support in Congress or it hasn't gone anywhere in Congress, it doesn't really mean that it is actually an unpopular idea. And one of the things is that it's happening is uh, uh, the tenets of the DREAM Act, the ones that have actually become uh, what we call DACA, it's actually very popular in American public opinion. So uh, my old uh, colleagues at the Public Religion Research Institute have been asking this question since 2011. So they've actually been asking it since they came into existence. Uh, by they, I mean PRI. Uh, and basically ask these questions about the basic tenets of the DREAM Act. And the support is bipartisan. Like, their last version of this question was asked in August. And it asked basically, uh, allowing, do you favor or oppose allowing illegal immigrants brought to the U.S. as children to gain legal resident status if they join the military or go to college? So two-thirds of Americans in August say that they support this policy or they favor it, including 79% of Democrats and 51% of Republicans. It certainly uh, has a bipartisan support even in the post-Trump years. Actually, it's higher now than it was earlier in the decade among Republicans. But it has had that uh, same kind of level of support. But of course, uh, you know, there's blockage by you know, senators uh, and hardliners in the House of Representatives. And so basically it's all this popular support that eventually popular support and <clears throat> sorry, uh, political action by the dreamers that actually led to the Obama administration finally doing DACA uh, for them. And that's basically the short version of that long story of how DACA came to be. Uh, now, what's next with DACA and why it matters? Well, we know that DHS is phasing out the program. The Bush, uh, sorry, the Trump administration uh, announced it uh, in September. Already there have been reports of, even before that, the DACA recipients had been targeted for deportation. Uh, one of the things that I actually wanted to highlight before is that one of the reasons this issue is particularly important for many DACA recipients and for many people in immigrant communities is that these are not the discourse that we have right now on immigration basically talk, if you had a Venn diagram of American citizens and American immigrants, they never find each other. 
that you have these discrete groups of immigrants and these discrete groups of uh, American citizens. And the reality is very murky, right? Like these other survey of DACA recipients show that basically half of them have a U.S. citizen family member, 60% have a U.S. citizen sibling, 25% have a U.S. citizen child. Most of them have undocumented parents and most of them have undocumented family members. So these are communities that are intertwined. So if if you're saying like we're just going to target the undocumented people, you're literally breaking up families. Uh, and to a large extent, uh, it, it, you know, the, the way that this is the reason why many people are not very happy with the discourse, right? Because these are not just people who appeared here out of nowhere. Like they have families in the country and outside the country. Uh, one of the other problems is that the recipients' worst fears are being, are becoming true, right? Like there are, they're not just the only undocumented members of their family. So now the government has their information, has made a priority to remove people who are in the country without documents. And that means that now their families are fair play. And actually, right before, uh, as I was writing these, uh, these notes, uh, came the deadline uh, for DACA and several thousand did not renew their uh, status uh, or did not renew their application. And the administration actually has made, uh, aside with the destruction of the planet, immigration enforcement uh, their greatest priority. Now, one of the things that I've been talking about is that, you know, the president is the master of the art of the deal, and he has given Congress up to March of 2018 to strike one on comprehensive immigration reform. He often claims that he has made a deal with the Democrats on immigration policy. It's hard to believe that when he usually goes back into his wall every time he's in trouble, (laughs) Uh, to try to get his base excited. Uh, he basically has deputized eyes to do his dirty work for him. He has started his voice program, which is uh, basically uh, find an, <laughs> report an immigrant kind of program, which you can call, it's called Voices of uh, vic- is Victims of Immigrant Crime or something like that. Uh, so basically, you know, people are encouraged to call and report immigrants committing crimes. And he has already an implementation policy in the works with this from the Senate that is called the RACE Act, which is reforming American immigration for a strong employment, uh, which was in- introduced by Tom Cotton and David Perdue in the Senate. So certainly it's very hard to believe that whatever policy or whatever deal he's thinking of, it's going to be something that is particularly friendly uh, to uh, the DACA recipients and their families. What is happening now is that the states are getting back into action. They may, we may have court proceedings for the next few years. Over these, uh, already 15 states, New York, Massachusetts, Washington, Connecticut, Delaware, the district, Hawaii, Illinois, Iowa, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Virginia 
are suing the federal government to keep DACA in place. At least six dreamers have already sued the Trump administration. And California is having its own separate uh, lawsuit over the uh, over the, the phasing out of DACA. And then on the other hand, you have 10 states that had threatened to sue the administration if they didn't have DACA rescinded. And those were Arkansas, Alabama, Idaho, Kansas, Louisiana, Nebraska, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Texas. I mean, sorry, and Idaho. Uh, so for a summary, so basically DACA ended up helping about 800,000 undocumented immigrants to have a sense of normalcy on their day-to-day -day lives that came with great risks, and those risks are becoming obvious now. Uh, it was an imperfect solution to a very complex complex, and that has been made worse by our gridlock Congress. Uh, the population selection was not random, and the DAC eligible to immigrants were framed as innocent victims who came at, as children with no choice of their own, and which basically in this narrative made their parents villains in the movie. Uh, but also ignores the fact that a lot of these former children, now adults, who are part of these particular populations are a victim of a immigration system which actually locks people, make it harder for people from leaving the country once they are there than uh, it would be with a freer flow of people. And we already have free flow of goods and capital. Uh, so money can flow, but people don't flow, but we know that corporations are people, so maybe, <laughs> maybe we have it wrong. Uh, and finally, uh, that the consequences of election are now leading to costly and long uh, legal battles at this time where, you know, Americans don't trust government. You have more people uh, lacking this trust in government, and this is going to make harder, not just in case uh, of DACA recipients and other immigrants, but many Latinos who are citizens who are very weary of what the government is doing. We have seen all the you know stuff going on in terms of like hacks, and so it's being it's very tough time in our history. Not just because people are cynical of what the government is doing, but also because the government is not actually helping itself uh, to get uh, to get back the trust in the people. Uh, and of course, it means now breaking a promise, a very overt promise of not deporting them and not targeting them after they have their information. And of course, that is a piecemeal solution that is not fixing the issue systematically. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Remember, if you like the podcast, uh, review it. You can subscribe in iTunes or your favorite app and follow us in Facebook and Twitter. This was Juan Navarro Rivera.